Welcome to Pot to Popular, a podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstream in cannabis. Join along as we learn from the greatest minds in this industry and learn about how cannabis is becoming part of popular culture, health, wellness, and industry. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we're joined by Travis Goad, Managing Partner at Polaris Equity Group. Travis is going to join us today and talk about their unique approach to funding cannabis companies and the opportunity they see ahead for real estate and cannabis. Welcome, Travis. Rosie, thanks for having me on the podcast today. I'm so glad to have you here today to talk about um, what you guys are doing at Polaris. But I want to start take a step back. First of all, let's give me, give me the two-minute elevator pitch. What is Polaris Equity Group? So Polaris is the longest running commercial real estate lender in the cannabis sector. Uh, we're structured as a commercial mortgage REIT. Uh, I'm one of the three principals at that firm. My two other two partners, Rob and Dan, founded the firm in 2012, and they had spent their time uh, lending in the, uh, the single-family residential sector doing construction and value-add, saw the opportunity to take that business model and apply it to the cannabis sector, and we closed our first cannabis loan in 2016, uh, and we have done about $350 million, uh, in loans since inception. We currently have about about 280 million in AUM, and we're growing very rapidly. We were the first cannabis debt fund to ever issue a corporate bond. We were the first cannabis debt fund to get a FDIC insured line of credit, uh, and we're growing uh, equity, raising about 15 to 20 million a month today. That's amazing. Such scale and so early. And I'd love to talk a little bit actually just about you and your background. You have an extensive experience working in commercial real estate specializing in debt and equity investments. Can you give the listeners a brief overview of your background and tell us what drew, what drew you to the cannabis space? How did you get here? Sure. So I've spent my career on the institutional side of real estate. So uh, I, I, I was at a hedge fund in New York, um, an $8 billion hedge fund. And there I traded uh, CMBS securities, both distressed and performing in the US and Europe. I was at a, uh, subsequent to that, I was at a, uh, a private equity group where I led a special situations investing effort, um, which included investing in distressed retail and um, and other things that didn't meet the core of the fund that we were at. I was at, and cannabis fell under that. So um, I was able to get them to do their first cannabis investments. We were the second largest investor in green acreage, uh, and then we had some money in Treehouse, which at the time the plan was to merge and list them publicly. Uh, Treehouse had some issues, and so the firm ended up merging with New Lake and ultimately did list. So I kind of got my feet wet in cannabis at that time, was looking around to see who's doing interesting things in the sector. I met with all the management teams of everybody trying to raise capital. That's actually how I came across Dan and Rob. Um, and I thought what they were doing in the debt space was extremely interesting. And uh, the opportunity came to partner with them and kind of I saw what they were doing at, at a kind of smaller scale and said, this is absolutely scalable and we can do this on an institutional level uh, and, and partner with them. And we've been growing and, and becoming more institutional uh, uh, every day. So, yeah. So and also just so people understand what the landscape sort of looks like in cannabis before Polaris entered the space, how did cannabis companies secure capital for real estate? And what do you think were the most significant pain points that Polaris was able to address? 
Sure. So very few people lend uh, on cannabis. So typically cannabis companies did everything all equity. So there, there before Polaris came in, it was dilute all of your investors and raise this capital that other companies typically wouldn't have to do so that you can own and control your real estate because you couldn't get debt. Um, and so one of the things that Polaris did was just to fill the niche and provide capital where capital wasn't previously available. But one thing that Polaris does extremely well, uh, and 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 Dan and Rob had developed this system in the in the residential sector was to get operators uh, open and operating as quickly as possible. And so we have a unique construction draw process, uh, and I can kind of walk through it. Is that in typical lending, cannabis or not, um, you're you typically get one draw per month for your construction project, and you need to recycle that capital through your project. And then when you submit that draw to a bank, if you're lucky, you get two, but almost everybody does one. When you submit your draw with all your paperwork, it typically takes seven to 15 days for that bank to process that draw. And what will happen is you may have 10 line items on a draw request. Nine of them, the inspector that came and checked the property says nine are good. Ten, we need more information on before we can do this. So most lenders would withhold the entire draw until you um, have addressed that one item. Uh, and so it can delay your construction and getting people paid and recycling that capital and getting you open and operating. What Polaris does is we actually give you unlimited draws per month. Mm. And what we'll do is once you submit your paperwork uh, with lien releases and waivers, we will actually process that draw in most cases, same day, but in no event later than three days. And in the event where you have those 10 items with one question about one item, but nine are fine, we will actually fund the nine that we are comfortable with and we'll hold back on the one that information on. So we allow you to recycle your capital faster. And we estimate it gets you open and operating 30 to 40% faster than a traditional lending model. And so one, we understand the canvas sector inside and out. So we can lend across markets, not just in certain you know key infill locations. We will lend across the sector. We get you open and operating faster than ever uh, than anybody else. And we also recently launched a stabilized lending program um, so that once you're open and operating and the, and the uh, project is de-risked, we can refinance you into our stabilized lending program at a lower rate uh, and give you term financing up to five years. And, you know, the first large, very large loan we closed in that program was the uh, Harborside State House transaction, which was announced uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, which is a $77 million loan that's in that stabilized lending program. And, you know, this is my next question and how you guys like assess things. Real estate and cannabis are two relatively risky model sectors to work in. How does your team, so, you know, when you like assess those like nine of the 10 things, how does your team identify potential investments and actually assess that risk reward of the opportunities? Like when you're looking at, you know, that list. And also, since you guys have been doing this for so long, has your evaluation criteria for potential deals evolved over the past three years that you've grown? Talk to us about like that trajectory. Sure. So, so we, you know, we lend primarily on the real estate assets collateral. Everything in the canvas lending space is a bit of a hybrid between a corporate lending and a real estate lending. And if you think about the spectrum, we're much closer to the real estate lending side of that spectrum uh, and look to hard assets as collateral. Now we're still collateralized by the license because it has to be a functioning facility um, in, in case we ever had to, you know, own it or something, you know, wrong happened. Uh, so we, we need to be able to have a functioning facility to ultimately sell to somebody else or, or, or to, to lease to somebody else. And so we have that collateral package. Um, but we, we look at strength of the market and, and I can touch on, yes, our, 
cannabis is the fastest, uh, uh, fastest changing industry I've ever worked in. And so um, we're constantly learning every new deal we do, we learn from it. And as the landscape changes, we adjust our underwriting and our structures in order to try to, to address these risks and opportunities in the sector. And so um, one, our underwriting process uh, is based heavily on the value of the real estate. And then two, um, we we have a significant amount of data from all the loans we've closed. We've had more loans and more payoffs than any other lender that has recently entered the space. Uh, we have a deeper network of deals we've closed and paid off and have just great market knowledge tied to that. But what we also have too is because there's not a lot of data in the cannabis space and a lot of traditional data providers don't do that. We actually founded a separate data company and we have a best in class data team that's been scraping data from, you know, north of 20 different sources into a proprietary database that gives us a view on the market that nobody else has. And I would actually describe it as how we typically used to underwrite deals, um, which were well underwritten great deals. I mean, it was very much on an asset by asset basis of what we thought. And I would say it's almost like, you know, shining a flashlight in a dark room on one asset. And we were very comfortable with how that asset looked. But with this data project, which I know nobody else in the industry is doing, it's like somebody flipped the lights on in the room. And not only can we look at the exact strength of each individual deal like we've always had, but we're able to better see where that fits within the broader state market, what we view of the health of that state market and where we want to kind of target opportunities within that value chain. That's pretty incredible. And also like... um I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, that growth, right? You guys have experienced, I, I believe it's 430, uh, 434% year-over-year growth in 2021. That's a pretty remarkable figure. So what were some of the factors that fueled this growth? And do you anticipate any new headwinds or tailwinds in 2020 that impact the company growth? So the growth is that we've, we have a long enough track record and people are buying both investors and borrowers have, have really, uh, uh, we've really filled a niche in the market. And so, um, that borrowers in this space, there are certain lenders out there that are, are very kind of predatory type lenders that do different things. We want to be the number one cannabis lender for the next 20 years in the cannabis space. And we believe that's built on uh, reputation, that's built on doing the right things, and that's built on providing a product that people want. And so that's what we've kind of designed and been able to put capital out in the States. On the investor side, our credit process and underwriting has proven itself. So um, we, we've uh, all, all of our loans have paid off. We have a very strong performance record. And so investors are attracted to that profile as well. So I would say it was a mix of both of those things that, that have really gone and, and us accessing capital markets in a more efficient way. I mean, we're still a cannabis lender, so we don't have access to the same capital markets uh, on debt side that, that other traditional commercial mortgage REITs do. But um, kind of given my background and, and where I spent most of my career, we've been trying to leverage that and kind of pry open some of these capital markets. Um, and I think their corporate bond was a prime example. We were the first people to do it outside of IIPR. So IIPR is a sale leaseback REIT. They successfully did it. We were the first debt fund to successfully do it. We raised 50 million dollars into the end of last year. Um, to give you an idea on our growth trajectory, as we've gotten bigger, we've been able to compete on bigger and bigger loans with bigger and bigger operators. And so last year we closed uh, $109 million in loans in 2021. Year to date, we've already closed $100 million and we continue to expect that, that growth. So, um, you know, barring some, you know, large disruption in the cannabis sector where performance drops um, or, you know, outsized volatility, I would say, 
um, you know, in just broader markets, given what's going on in Ukraine and some of these other issues that may kind of impact um, kind of investor demand. I don't see any real uh, headwinds that would stop it. If anything, we have tailwinds that are back now. And one of the things that we have done different than some of our newer competitors that have kind of launched in the space is we're, we're private. So where their stock is subject to volatility and, and a lot and, and much more impacted um, on their ability to access capital being in the public markets, uh, being private, we're a little bit more insulated in that. And we've enjoyed you know, very strong access to capital. Yeah, I was, that was going to be my next question, uh, the advantages of remaining a private company. Um, so I'd love for you to elaborate on that. And also, um, I'll talk a little bit like how that's helped like your yield to investor be consistently so high. So the way we look at it is, is you go public for two, you know, a couple of reasons, one of which is because you can't access, access capital other places. Uh, the other two, one is to be able to use your, your shares as currency in M&A. Um, and there's trade-offs that come with going public. Uh, it, one, you have an increased uh, uh, compliance and overhead cost just being a public company. Two, you have volatility tied to uh, your stock price. So when you're looking to go issue more shares, um, depending if there's a lot of volatility, it can impact your ability to access accretive capital um, and based on where you did your last share price. So what we have not struggled with, and we did it all internally, and I credit my partner, Rob, who, who built this incredible machine, um, is that we raise all our capital internally, um, and we have tremendous access to capital. I would actually argue in most sectors, I would say outside of cannabis, um, public companies tend to have better access to capital than private companies. And I would actually argue, having been involved in quite a few of the deals that ultimately went public, that the, the inverse is true right now in cannabis and that we actually have stronger access to, to, to capital than, than our publicly traded uh, newly launched competitors. And so, um, and, and in general, our investors, it's kind of capitalizing on a longer trend you've just seen in credit markets over the last decade is that allocators tend to like private credit vehicles um, because you don't get that volatility and you have a little bit more consistency of returns because ultimately we're collecting a coupon and, and we're getting loans paid off and redistributing that capital and getting recycling that capital. And, you know, the public price of a stock is not necessarily indicative of the underlying credit risk of the book. And so, um, you know, we don't have that volatility that we have to deal with on a day to day. And, you know, so as of now, we've not seen the, uh, the pros and cons of being public, uh, you know, outweigh, you know, we think the pros of being private right now are, are significantly better. Yeah, and um, I, I want to switch gears. Something that you, you mentioned um, a little earlier about the Harper's ideal. Uh, so, congratulations on Thank closing you. out the first tranche of the roll-up financing for State House Holdings, um, which I think is your biggest individual debt deal to date. So, I know the consolidation of Harperside and Loudpack and Urban Leaf marks a major milestone for California, um, since the you know market is particularly fragmented. Um, so, how do you see M and A strategies evolving in California, which is you know your you guys' home state or where you guys are located or headquartered, beyond the stage of the industry, and for and also just as a, as a like as part of that for companies or operators trying to get acquired, how can they position themselves to be an attractive target? You know, you've been watching this unfold. Sure, and and thank you for bringing it up. Yes, that was has been our individual largest uh, transaction to date. Something we're very excited about and being able to provide capital to what we view as what's going to be a formal player in California. And I'd like to just touch on the the loan structure there a little bit, and and kind of what we think differentiated us in that is that. Um, that was a very complicated loan where you have a merger of three companies simultaneously. And due to, um, you know, some of the individual company um, kind of uh, debt maturities, 
there was a need to close part of it prior to the merger closing. And so we were able to structure a deal where we closed um, a first tranche and then the second tranche gets access once the merger is finally complete. Uh, and it really both set us apart in the structure, but also, you know, draws on all of our years of experience. Me and my partners, you know, I spent years doing some of the most complicated debt deals in the non-cannabis space. And we definitely want the market to understand that we're the lender you come to. If you have complicated deals, we can structure around and meet your needs in order to fund um, because we just know how to do this. So I've done it many times over our career. So I always say that. Um, as far as on the acquiring front, you do see a trend in consolidation. You know, that is happening. We're seeing it in states, California in particular, where people are, are looking for that scale to, to, to drive increased profitability. So I think, you know, what we've seen is kind of companies that are dominant in the niche that they're in. And I would say that, you know, Urban Leaf and, and Loudpack and Harborside are, are good examples of that where Urban Leaf is a, a great retailer that has really positioned itself with a lot of brand equity and, and very popular with consumers. And each of these companies had really great individual things that they were much stronger together. So if you're looking to position yourself, I would say, you know, one, keep audited financials, keep keep your books good. That, that's something that you don't see a lot in cannabis, but try to position yourself to have what institutional investors and, and basically large institutional buyers would want to look at. But then two, excel in your your niche and, 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 and look for profitability. And I think those are what people are looking for when they're looking to roll up other companies. Yeah. And, and leaving California for a bit, um, considering how uh, 40 states now legalize cannabis in some capacity, how do you guys determine new markets entry? I know you guys have the proprietary data and analytics platform, you know, which which make, it does play a role in your due diligence. But how do you guys identify potential opportunities in new markets with limited retail or investor insights? So all the things you said, we're, we're looking at the data, we're mapping it out. It's not just California. We have this data and we have it in every legal market. And so we really use that to determine where within the, the supply chain that we want to be. And, and I think kind of, most of these states are still in their kind of earlier growth, getting up to stabilization stage. So we see a lot of opportunity across states. Um, and so we are active. You know, we're in Nevada, we're in Arizona, we're in Michigan, we're in California, we're in Missouri, and we're looking at any legal market and we'll go into any legal market. Now, we don't limit ourselves to just these limited license kind of East Coast markets. We like those markets. We definitely will be active in those markets and we're quoting loans actively in all of these markets and definitely want those markets in our book. Um, but there is sometimes people have a you know uh, uh, a view of California as a, a difficult market to be in just because it's so competitive and 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 but it's the largest cannabis market legal cannabis market on the planet so you know we believe that you have to be active in that market and we like that market a lot we think there's some structural reasons why we think that market will outperform in the very long term and so um, you know we look at kind of where we see the industry going. We try to have a lens as to, to where these each state will develop and where we think the opportunity is when we're doing it and ultimately size it tied to kind of real estate strength of sponsorship and, um, you know, where we think they, what market share we think that they're able of achieving or currently have. Yeah. And um, that makes a lot of sense. And also just taking even, even this like more national view and, and just a little bit of what's happening in Washington even though the House recently paid safe banking, I think, for the sixth time with our Senate so divided, I know a lot of people are skeptical that safe banking will pass at least before the midterms. Um, so how can businesses affordably access the necessary capital to scale during this critical period of industry growth? And how will the influx of institutional capital via either safe banking or federal legalization impact capital markets and deal flow for you guys? 
So we're thriving in this environment. We expect we'll thrive in the environments in this as the rules change and, and predicting when this is going to happen and government read is is uh, well, there uh, and yes. <laughs> We, we depend on uh, on third parties to kind of give us that insight. Um, but at the same time, you know, in, in the government, it's so hard to predict when, when that's going to happen. But we're setting ourselves up to outperform in all scenarios. What we think is if there was a safe banking uh, and, and if there was a broad base, either descheduling or legalization event where um, where additional lenders got into the space, um, which we do think at some point will happen. We do think that there will be some increase competition in the space. But what we found, having done it as long as we have, is that there's a significant information gap in understanding how to do these deals and structure these deals and what's good credit and what's not good credit. So we think any of those competitors are going to have to, one, come up that that hill, which I don't think is going to be um, an overnight process. But then two, in the world where that happens, that's the world where I can access capital markets in a much different way than I, I can access them today. And I do think there, there will always be a place in the market for a specialized commercial REIT lender. Um, you know, I actually think what's a very good comp for cannabis is cold storage, data centers, and lab space. They're all specially used assets that have very intense capital uh, costs that go with it. And they're specially REITs that thrive in all of those sectors, even though banks can compete in that as well. And so I think basically with our unique draw process, with our understanding of the space and our ability to, to you know, put out capital and, and, and understand this sector, um, that we'll have a competitive advantage for years to come. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, I know we're not going to crystal ball legalization, but I'd love to know what you believe are the most lucrative sectors in the cannabis space, what they'll be over the next year. You know, <laughs> that's that's uh, I, I would love if, if I could crystal ball the most lucrative uh, sectors in the space. Um, that that would be uh, special. I, I think <laughs> I think that it's shifting so fast, and everybody's trying to figure out where the best place to be. I mean, what you see is most people want brands. That all these operators are, you know, I, I want a brand. I want to be asset light. You know, I have this profitable brand image, and, and frankly, very few people have been able to execute on that well. And there's a lot of slick back. Uh, marketing, a lot of slick packaging, but, you know, so far, uh, there's only a couple of brands that I'm aware that really stand out to consumers today. And so I think that that's one kind of model to go. But we, we're also seeing in our portfolio of some of our operators are part of the kind of disaggregation of the supply chain to where, you know, for, for in many markets, one, out of necessity, but two, sometimes driven by regulatory, you're forced to be 100% vertically integrated and do everything from, you know, cultivation to retail. And, and what you're kind of seeing is that some companies have realized they do some portions of that extremely well and some not so well. And so um, you're either seeing mergers between companies that are doing certain parts excellent to where maybe they can come into the vertically, but you're also seeing companies saying, I just want to focus on this and whether that be packaging, manufacturing, but that be something that they do. Uh, and that what we've seen is some of the first movers in those sectors have, have uh, produced tremendous profits and, and, and rewards for doing that. And so um, it, it's just been fun watching this industry grow and everybody kind of maps it. To, I think it comes to, to, to this industry. I think it comes to that. Um, and, and so everybody kind of looks to a model to see how cannabis is going to develop. And so why does it develop perfectly into these models? Um, but it is interesting to kind of see it play out and kind of create its own kind of story and profitability. I, I'm totally with you. And, you know, just to wrap up, what's exciting you most about the next year in cannabis? Like what gets you like, jazzed up in the morning about what the opportunity is? Uh, I mean, there's so much opportunity. 
uh, I'm excited. I'm excited about the growth of our firm. I'm excited about the, the, the tailwinds we have behind our back, being able to put out capital, being able to offer a product that we think is unique in the sector that we're seeing tremendous demand for um, and, and our continued growth, but also, you know, new markets keep coming online, new markets open, and, and there's great innovation on the product level that, you know, I think will draw in new consumers that may, may have had a stigma tied to cannabis in the past or, or maybe, you know, not want to do a, a, an inhalable. And so there's some beverages that are happening. There's all these interesting things that are going on in the sector. And, it, you know, I get excited every day to just to watch all these increasingly smart, innovative people that are being involved in this industry doing some really, really special things. And, and we're excited to be part of being able to fund their, their growth and be part of the growth of this industry. And, and we're constantly looking internally, not just how we currently lend to the sector, but how we can plug other capital markets holes in the cannabis sector and leverage our expertise, data, and this great team we've built in order to, to, to do other things. So um, we're looking at different new investment vehicles that can come and uh, do things outside of just the lending sector. So there's just a lot of exciting things happening. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Travis, for joining us today. It was really great to catch up and uh, learn about Polaris's approach to lending um, and looking forward to watching the Harper side uh, deal close and with you guys backing it. So thanks again for joining us today. Awesome. Thank, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed speaking and talking about all the exciting things that are going on and uh, look forward to being in touch again soon.